Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ohad Fadida, a host on the network. Today, we'll be talking to Rabbi Amin Levy about his new book, The Mysticism of Andalusia, Exploring Harambam's Mystical Tradition. Rabbi Levy is rabbi of the Iranian Jewish Center in Great Neck, New York, and founder of the Maimonides Heritage Center. He was formerly the academic vice president of Yeshiva University's Sephardic Studies program, and he is author of a number of books and numerous articles on Sephardic studies, Jewish law, and Tanakh. Rabbi Amin Levy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ohad, for having me. Really, I appreciate the, the opportunity to talk to you and to talk to your listeners about my book and about whatever you throw at me. Totally happy to be here. Thank you so much. So, Rabbi Levy, can you tell us about yourself and what brought you to write this book? Myself, uh, about me, is less important than uh, the book. That's the truth. I'm a Sephardic Jew born in Morocco. Um, I grew up in Montreal. I went to Yeshiva University. And uh, the study of Harambam at Maimonides just has always been a passion of mine. Um, and I've always been just astounded and shocked at how... Uh, Harambam, a central figure in Jewish culture and Jewish intellectual studies, could be so misunderstood. And I always imagined when I was younger that maybe I was wrong. And I continue rereading and rereading his works until I um, met a beloved teacher. Uh, his name was Chacham Yosef Faur. And then uh, met, uh, I don't know if the name means anything to anybody, Professor David Blumenthal of Emory University. And all of a sudden, I, I met up with a group of uh, students of Harambam who began exploring or, or, or furthered the exploration of reading Harambam as he intended his works to be read. Um, now, I, I begin my book by stating, I wish it wasn't me who had written this book. I wish someone else would have written it. I would have been the first to buy it and purchase it and study it. Um, But we live at a time where um, Jewish culture and Jewish religion and Jewish spiritual pursuits uh, are dominated by Eastern European and early medieval Germanic uh, uh, pietistic thinking uh, that they've subsumed under this topic of Kabbalah um, based on a medieval exegetical work, the Zohar. Um, And it's just infiltrated throughout Judaism, including Sephardic circles. And uh, I just felt it was time, I'm getting old, and I felt it was time to just put out an authentic Jewish mystical tradition. 
the book has been met. My last post uh, in Substacks, uh, you know, I'm happy to announce that the book is a bestseller on Amazon in, in the genre of religion and uh, Judaism. Uh, but it's met with all kinds of reactions. There is a strong demographic out there that refuses to accept the thesis of the book, even though it's based on Harambam, Maimonides. Um, There's a demographic out there, including academics, uh, who wrote and said, truthfully, their eyes have been open to seeing how um, the European, and I include in European, northern Spanish schools of thought and the French-German schools of thought um, differentiate from the southern Spanish and and, and uh, Central Asian and Southwestern Asian schools of thought. And the differences aren't just academic. They are cultural. And it's important to see that. And, um, you know, while... Medieval Europe was in the Dark Ages. The Middle Ages uh, saw one of the most enlightened societies in the history of humanity, which was Southern Spain, Central Asia, and Southwestern Asia, where brilliant minds were studying philosophy, sciences, mathematics, uh, and the Jews in those circles flourished And that's where Harambam and others uh, like uh, Ibn Chazdai, Chazdai ibn Shaprut, and Shemuel Hanagid, and Shilomo ibn Gabirol, and these great minds flourished in that enlightened period. So that was why I, I, I felt it's time to put the book out there. I do say, and it's a caveat right at the beginning, that I hope it's just a, a, a platform for smarter and wiser and more intellectual people to build on this. We really have to anchor ourselves back at what authentic, spiritual, mystical pursuits are. That's really, I think, the what you pick up in the book is that it's not just this academic, intellectual writing, but it's really a call to action and it's really a very practical and it's very, it's responding to something that's happening uh, today. Um, you, you, so you spoke about really the, the thesis and, and, you know, the main thrust, and maybe you can make some order, maybe define for our audience, what is mysticism? What is Kabbalah? You threw around these terms. Uh, what is Andalusia? Maybe you can define those terms for us. Okay. Thank you. So you're right. Uh, I put Andalusia in the title and it, the elitist part of me did that. A lot of people, I've received so many emails. People had no idea what I meant by Andalusia and why I put that in title. And I think it's important that people recognize, yeah, Andalus, Al-Andalus was southern Spain uh, that was conquered by the Muslims who came through North Africa into southern Spain. And for a period of about 200 years, as I said a moment ago, this was a very enlightened community and culture. In fact, much of modern-day mathematics is based on that. We say algebra. The A-L before the word algebra is from Arabic, an algorithm. These are ideas 
that emerged in this enlightened period. They were experts in Greek philosophy, Aristotelian, Platonic philosophy. The works of Ibn Sina and others of that culture are timeless. And all this was taking place, as I said a moment ago, while Europe was in the Dark Ages. The study of philosophy and sciences was forbidden by the church. They were, um, for them, religion was this proto-Indo-European mythology, superstitions and black magic and astrology. And um, uh, so Andalusia is the place, the region where Harambam, Maimonides' mystical tradition emerged. Now, it's very important to understand. For the last 150 years, the academic world wants to peg Maimonides as the ultra-rationalist. Why? Because they wanted to have at least one medieval Jewish scholar who they can claim is one of their own, scientific and, and rationalist, and they were responding, it was a knee-jerk reaction to Kabbalah, which was just all about superstition and thurgic thinking and magic and charms and amulets. Um, but the reality is there's this middle road where Harambam was indeed a rationalist, was indeed the greatest halachicist since the time of the Talmud, but he was very spiritual. And the last work that he penned, The Guide of the Perplexed, was his great mystical work. It's a guide to prophecy. It's a mystical guide. Now, the difference between mysticism and Kabbalah is very great. Kabbalah is uh, uh, what we say anthropocentric, centered around the human being. Man is the center of the world. Man is most important. Everything is about man. And so uh, God needs man's sacrifices uh, because we can twist God's arm and, and manipulate God. Uh, God gave the Jewish people commandments so that we can manipulate nature. And so in the Kabbalistic uh, thinking, you know, one places a mezuzah on the door as a form of protection of your home, of your being, of yourself. You put tefillin on your arms uh, to protect your mind and your hand. And so if you break your arm, they tell you, go check your tefillin. If your house burns down, check your mezuzahs. If your marriage is falling apart, it's because someone didn't write a correct ketubah. This becomes all about magic and thurgy thinking, thurgic thinking. Uh, 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 sacrifices, as I said a moment ago, and I'm writing more about this. I write about it in my book, uh, but I'm writing more about this because it's such a critical point in, in the European uh, a point of view, God needs our sacrifices for whatever God needs it for. It's helping God out. 
in the Andalusian tradition, there is no such thing as Kabbalah. Everything's about God. It's God-centered. And uh, God doesn't need our sacrifices like the many prophets have already said. And God doesn't need our mezuzahs. And God doesn't need our tefillin. It's about becoming God-conscious, about bettering the individual in terms of making ourselves more conscious of God and of the world. And so a theme that, I, that, that I've developed in my book, which is very important, and I, I'm writing more about this, is Judaism is about inducing knowledge, inducing love of God, inducing an awe of God. When you see the mezuzah HaRambam writes, you awaken to the great mystery of our existence. I mean, look up into the heavens and you say, oh my God, we are this minuscule, tiny little thing in this vast universe. How could one not be inspired? How could one not feel the sense of love of our creator? And so that's what the guide of the perplexed is. The guide, Arambam's mystical um, uh, uh, pursuits have stages of development. And the first is to purge the mind, clean your mind. Our minds are so magnificent. The first chapter of the guide is about the human mind. Of all the creations, God made the human being different and God gave the human being the ability to access the divine, divine wisdom. And that's where Harambam launches the guide and he goes into just various stages of development until you reach the final chapters, which is just so enlightening and so beautiful. Does that answer your question? I hope it does. Oh, that's perfect. Before we maybe jump into the meat and bones, you chose Maimonides, you chose Rambam as sort of your prime figure as who you follow in this, uh, this the mysticism of Andalusia. Why did you choose Rambam? Perfect. It's a good question. And a, a secondary thesis of my book um, and the next book that I'm coming out with, I'm calling it um, The Founding Fathers of Sephardic Jury. Uh, is very, very important. And Chabura has had wonderful sessions about this. Harambam, his uh, worldview has direct, clear roots to the Gaonic tradition, which is the Southwestern Asian tradition, which represents the most direct link to the Talmud and the Mishnah. And so there's a clear line. Judaism is about rabbinic Judaism, under understanding the rabbi's teachings correctly. And that was interpreted, began with Rabbi Nasi, the Mishnah. It was then expanded upon in the Talmud. Then you have the a, a period in history which is post-Talmudic, pre-Geonic, which is Saboraim, where they were not... Uh, they studied, they, they of course knew the Talmud and they were the most direct link to the Talmudic tradition, but they didn't write it down. They studied it orally. Then you have the Geonim, which began putting the rabbinic tradition in writing. 
and its 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 greatest leader was Rabbi Sadia Gaon, who was a brilliant philosopher, a a a man of science and mathematics, and a a just a knew the entire rabbinic tradition of halakha, agada, midrash, and he was just a, a brilliant, charismatic leader. And then you have, that is directly linked to the Maimonidean schools of Torah. And so that's why, to me, Harambam represents the most direct and most authentic link to rabbinic Judaism. There's no doubt in my mind about that. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Right. Right. So more than just being a, an interesting figure, which and some, sometimes Maimonides is sort of presented this way as like this completely individualistic thinker, you're arguing and you bring this up in the book, Maimonides was a direct link of a previous, of a, of a tradition, this great tradition that he was, that he inherited. You and said it exactly one. right. Correct. Correct. He, he, I, you know, my I have a beef with uh, with my good friend Micah Goodman, who who you know he wrote the book the the, the book that changed Judaism, and I say to him uh, with so much love and respect, I say, what are you talking about? Harambam was a transmitter of a tradition that was alive and well. He wasn't an innovator. Now he does innovate, and he says when he innovates, he says. In the Mishneh Torah, many places, I'm saying, regarding Simichat Chachamim, says, you know, this is a new concept, a new idea, and he puts it forward. But other than that, he's a transmitter of a tradition that is alive and well. Now, unfortunately, he was born at a time when the Andalusian tradition was falling apart. The fundamentalist Almohads were invading uh, Central Asia, North Africa, and they came into southern Spain. And it was the end of that tradition. Many Jews, many great scholars went north, like the Ibn Tibon families, Abraham Ibn Ezra. They went north. And they, they, the Ibn Tibon families, what they did was they preserved the Andalusian tradition, the Judeo-Arabic Andalusian tradition, by translating it into Hebrew. And they were respected in Europe as brilliant scholars who brought much of this tradition to Europe. But a character like Rabbi Avraham Ibn Ezra never found a home in Europe. And he went from city to city. We have correspondences of his between him and the Balei Tosafot. His, his commentary on Tanakh is so guarded because if it was going to sell in Europe... It had to be guarded. And he speaks of the 12, the secret of the 12, Ibn Ezra writes. The, the secret of the 12 is, of course, <coughs> the 12th verses at the end of the Torah that he believed in the Andalusian, <coughs> excuse me, the Andalusian tradition believed may have been written by Joshua. And there's nothing wrong with that. But to mention that in Europe would have cast him out as a heretic. And he ended up dying in London, alone. Others, like Harambam, went south, went to North Africa, and Harambam ended up in Egypt, where he could continue 
recording, and that's what his main life task was, to record into writing the Andalusian tradition. And it begins with his commentary on the Mishnah, which you should know, thanks to Harambam, we actually have a Mishnah text, because Harambam went and copied each Mishnah before he commented on it. Then he wrote Sefer HaMitzvot, then the Mishneh Torah, where he records the entire halachic system, A to Z, a th- 14 volumes, a thousand chapters, organized the entire Talmud in a scientific fashion. And as he says, when someone has mastered these rabbinic principles, mastered the sciences, metaphysics, natural sciences, then you go into the mystical. And that's the guide of the perplexed. He wrote that 10, 12 years before he died. And that was the natural evolution. And so that's how one reads the Moreha Nevuchim, the guide of the perplexed. It's a mystical work. And he says so a number of times throughout the work. Right, right. So, so jumping into his mystical tradition. So you write about how the goal is really to develop a relationship to de- with God, to develop awe, fear, love, and that the mystical tradition is meant to serve as a regiment of sorts. It's a, it's a science that takes you to that space. So can you give us a little bit of a overview? What, what does that regiment look like? <laughs> okay, fantastic question. And it is a regiment. And I, I, can, I can identify every point in the guide. And the regiment begins with the desire of the pursuit. And that is found in the letter that Harambam writes. It's a 450-word letter. He writes before his introduction to the Guide of the Perplexed. He writes it to his student. And Harambam over there clearly states how the student had the desire to know and to know more. The mystical pursuit, the spiritual trajectory must begin with that desire. But desire is not enough. You have to pursue correct knowledge. And that's very important. Because at the end of the guide where Harambam talks about the palace and finding the ruler in the middle of the palace, the most unfortunate are those who want to know and are pursuing knowledge, but it's incorrect knowledge, and they're filling their minds with nonsense. Harambam says these tragic figures have their back against, their back facing the palace. They're moving in the wrong direction. And in order to pursue correct knowledge, you first have to purge the mind. I call that in my book, in a based on it's a, it's a little bit ironic. I use Abulafia's term, which means to untie the knots. And Abulafia was a big fan of the Guide of the Perplexed, but he took the book into the wrong direction completely. But untying the knots that we are so raised with, I'll give you just a quick example. We are now in the midst of the nine days. We're going to begin the nine days. <coughs> and um, 
Shulchan Aruch, based on the Mishnah, says, Mishnichnas Av, Mimatim Simcha, you enter Av, you diminish joy. <coughs> Harambam doesn't include any of that in his Mishneh Torah. And there's a reason for that. Because that line could be very misunderstood. The Mishnah did not mean that bad things happen in the month of Av because it's the month of Av. What the Mishnah meant is bad things happen in the month of Av, therefore one should diminish their joy. The time did not have an effect on Jerusalem, rather this is what happened when it happened in Jerusalem. And in order to avoid that confusion, Harambam ignores that. One has to purge one's mind of everything that is superstitious, everything that is magical, everything that is charm-related, everything that is not based on halakha, anything that is thurgic. Clean your mind of it. Then you have to fill it with correct knowledge philosophical knowledge, recognizing when we speak of God, you can't speak of God in any positive terms because no human experience can know what God is. And so there's a practice that I speak of in my book and Harambam speaks of in the Morena Hanevuchim about negative theology, but that's for a different conversation. But then one has to learn how to induce love, and awe of God. That's the next level. And I do all kinds of things. In addition to personal meditation that I do every morning, and in addition to taking a walk in the evening and just behold of the grand universe, I subscribe to Astronomy Magazine. And people come to my house, my kids ask, Dad, what's that about? And I just say, looking at those pictures of the James Webb Telescope, learning about the vastness of our universe induces in me a sense of awe, awesomeness. And it's in that moment when you really feel it and your your knees get weak and your mind gets foggy and you say, "How? what are we doing here? How could this be? That's a flash of mysticism, of mystical experience. And then you have to take that to the next level, to the level of contemplation. You have to learn to contemplate on that and be in that space as much as possible. Harambam speaks of Moshe Rabbeinu and Avraham, Yitzchak and Yaakov, were always in that space of deep contemplation. Even when they did menial work, that contemplation then becomes awareness. You see the world differently. You look at another person differently. You're not looking at Ohad Fedida, a future psychologist who's a handsome young man. Instead, you look into Ohad's eyes and you see a soul. You see a transcendent being that is one with the entire universe. You know, your your DNA is 13 billion years old, as is mine. We are part of this vast oneness. And when you bring all that together in, 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 in deep meditation, you really access higher knowledge, higher consciousness, and higher wisdom. I know I'm sounding maybe like way out there, far out for your friends, but that's the beauty of this great book. 
of the guide of the perplexed. I hope that answered your question. No, for sure. That was beautiful. Very beautiful. And that's really why this is so valuable, I think, because this is a response. This is a balanced response that on one hand, we're not, this tradition does not fall to the superstitious and does not give up our minds and our intellect. And at the same time, still allows for deep emotional, spiritual awakening, which is something very uh, rare today, I would say. You, You said that beautifully. There's no reason it would be an insult to God to suspend our reason. We were given such beautiful minds. Preserve that. And so there is a way, there is a tradition, there's an authentic mystical tradition that, you know, you didn't ask me about it, but, you know, the ultimate goal is union with God. And many of my academic friends, including my good friend Menachem Kellner, who I put his comment in the back of my book because I wanted my students and people to know that, I'm an orphan out there, but that's okay. There is such a thing as union with God. And this fantastic, brilliant scholar, Gidon Freudenthal from Tel Aviv University and um, Hebrew University, has just done some beautiful work on this. And I've meditated with him, and we've had shared experiences that have just been really profound. And I'm, I'm hoping in my next work on the guide, I'm going to develop that further, but that really is a, 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 a uh, you know, I'm going into the Holy of Holies over there uh, in terms of uh, getting to that, uh, to that point. Going back to the first step, which you talk about purging the mind, untying the knots, uh, using the Kabbalistic terms, and you speak about purging the mind from superstition, from, from magic, from from amulets from all of these you know what we it is very common in, in pop religion today i would say um why, why is that such a threat why is superstition such a problem because it takes you away from the core pursuit it's not about you it's about god it's about pursuit of god and the mind The beauty of the mind is as follows. There's no such thing as a vacuum in the mind. And so if you fill it with garbage, it's filled with garbage. The goal is to to preserve it and keep it pure. And uh, any form of corporeality of God, even mental corporeality of God, Harambam says, it's worse than bowing down to an idol. (laughs) Because you've corrupted the mind. Thinking, even casually, that this red ribbon people come back from Israel with is going to give you good luck, clouds the mind and and, and fills space that could otherwise be filled with purity, with clarity. And in the world of metaphysics, there's no half-half, you know what I'm saying? There's no... It, it, you, you want to pursue purity and clarity. And that's why you have to purge the mind of that stuff. Uh, you know, I have a lot of friends that, 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 that call themselves Mikubalim and Kabbalists and, 
uh, they read my book and 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 they were struck by you know how I could say that Nachmanides believed in in necroma, necromancy and 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 and, and evil spirits and I, I misunderstood Nachmanides and what I try to tell them is that you know we can do all kinds of mental gymnastics and explain Nachmanides off but the very fact that that language exists clouds the mind calling a book of Kabbalah Shi'ur Koma which means the measurement of his height just those words are horrible because it's a cancer of the mind to suggest any form of corporeality to God. And that's, uh, again, my, you know, this, this dispute is not new with me. They burned Harambam's books in the Middle Ages. You know that. They were turned over to the Franciscans who took it and burned them in public. But we don't have to go so far away, so long ago. In the early 20th century, when the Yemenite community started coming to Israel, there was a great Chacham, the grandfather of Rabbi Yosef Kafich. I think his name was Rabbi Yahya Kafich. Do you know? I, don't, I think that was his name, Rabbi Yahya Kafich. This Rabbi Cook excommunicated him. This is the famous Rabbi Cook who everybody loves. And there was this horrible correspondences back and forth. Why? Because Rabbi Kafich was trying to cleanse Judaism in Yemen and in his circles of influence of this superstition and of this magical thinking and of this Kabbalistic thinking. And when it came to the attention of Rabbi Cook, he was so offended by it. I'll tell you a story that Rabbi Kafich himself told me, Rabbi Yosef Kafich told me when I sat at his foot, at his feet studying Harambam. He told me that when he first came to Israel, he wanted to study at Yeshivat uh, Mosada Rav Kook. And they almost didn't accept him because of the grandfather's writings until some rabbis intervened and said, this young man's a brilliant genius, Talmid Chacham, we have to take him. So this is a, a controversy that continues to be alive and well. And I, like I said, I'm at a stage in my life where I feel I'll be the korban. But the word has to be put out there. We have to remind our young people that there is a pure Judaism. Right. Right. I'm there sorry is... for sounding so passionate. I, I just No, it's wonderful. When you, when you get under my skin, forget about it. Uh, that's where <laughs> no, I it's, it's wonderful. Uh there is, there is. You, you, you. We, we, you touched on this, and throughout the book, and throughout the mystical tradition of Andalusia, there is this massive emphasis, I believe, on on boundaries, on recognizing our limitations, on not, so to speak, touching God, on not entering, on en- not entering that, on recognizing the limits of our minds and what it's able to understand, and this, as you mentioned, you know, it expresses itself in Maimonides negative theology where he doesn't positively describe God. And this was, I think, a challenge for me reading the book, and and you did bring it up, I believe, twice, that there is sort of this paradox that comes up where, on one hand, purging the mind, we have to really 
recognize our limits and, and accept the boundaries and and recognize that we are not able to grasp God. But at the same time, the entire purpose and the goal of this tradition is union with God, is to have this intimate, emotional, spiritual connection with God. So, so how do you how do we reconcile those two ideas? Wow. So that, that's a very good question as well. And I just want to break that up into two parts. Um, it is a paradox. We're pursuing knowledge that we know we could never fully master. But the pursuit is the mystical experience. And the deeper one pursues it, the, the, the deeper one enters into that realm of the mystical. You never plateau. That's the reality. You never plateau. But our tradition constantly reminds us of boundaries, of spiritual boundaries. Uh, Yom Kippur, for example, probably the most misunderstood holiday in the entire Jewish tradition. It has a lot to do with atonement and teshuvah and forgiveness. But that's actually a secondary element of Yom Kippur. You know, the word Kippur, kapara, means protection. Noah covered his ark with kfar, kfor, which is the root word of Kippur. Uh, uh, if you research the, the, the shorish of the word Kippur, throughout Tanakh, it's it means protection. And so what is Yom Kippur protection from? And so it's, it's, it's visualized in the Kohen HaGadol's service of Yom Kippur, which is the most elaborate holiday practice that's described in the Torah. It's an entire chapter, chapter 16 in the book of Vayikra. It's an entire chapter plus more, where the Kohen has to prepare himself so carefully and he has to, uh, you know, separate himself for an entire week and, and wear special garments and go to the mikveh a few times and, and have the right thoughts and thinking why to enter the Kodesh HaKodashim, the Holy of Holies. And then Vaychaper al-Ben Israel, and then, and, 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 and that preparation is what protects him and protects the Jewish people and protects the Mizbeach from what? From the from proximity to the holiest of holy. And we just always have to be aware of that movement. Harambam writes in Hilchot Teshuvah that the period between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is when God is closest. What does that mean? There's no such thing as distance with God. But what? But all of Judaism comes together on Yom Kippur where if the mezuzah is an awareness, when I enter my house, I see and I become aware, Yom Kippur is the entire 24 hours awareness of God. And when one enters into that space, you enter into a mystical realm. All holidays are a... Um, an intensive of something we do all year round. 
So every day we have to remember Yitziat Mitzrayim, correct? Zechirat Yitziat Mitzrayim. Pesach comes and it's an intensive. All year round we have to study Torah. But Shavuot comes and it's an intensive. All year round, the entire system of mitzvot is about awareness of God. And awareness, as I told you, is the penultimate stage in that progression of spiritual trajectory. Comes Yom Kippur, and from the moment sun sets on the ninth, you awaken the awareness completely. No food, no drink, no intimate relations, no need for a shower. My physical becomes secondary. And this is what Harambam writes at the end of the guide. He says, you, you achieve that level of spirituality, all of a sudden, all physical needs vanish. And so Yom Kippur is about achieving that high level of awareness, but that requires kapara. The kapara is protection. And so we ask that God allow us proximity and we are protected from that holiness. I'm, I'm like totally, I mean, I don't know. I'm like far out there right now. This is, and I'm trying to give it to you in, in two minutes. But uh, this, this, I, this whole notion of what Yom Kippur is about is so profoundly mystical. So, you know, that's what the boundaries are. There's always those boundaries. We, we seek proximity, always conscious of the dangers of proximity. Right. So this tightrope that we walk. Yeah. The last cha- one of the last chapters in my book is the whole uh, narrative about the ark that was taken by the Pilishtim. Remember that? And the whole narrative over there is how the Jewish people misunderstood the role of the ark. They thought wars, battles are won with the ark. But they're not. Battles are won if you're good with God and you're not good with God. When the ark finally comes back to the Jewish people, they don't recognize the boundaries, the ark. There have to be boundaries with that holiness, with the sacred. And that's part of the clarity of the mind. My God, we we can go for hours on this, Ohad. This is very important stuff. You, you touched on this right now when, once you start talking about Yom Kippur and going on the level of inducing love, inducing awe, then, so you, so you spoke about, you do meditation and, and you subscribe to the, the, the magazine, the space magazine. And, but you, you touched on this right now, which is we have, you see, and you speak about this in the book, how the mitzvot, the commands of the Torah themselves become avenues for that mystical union. That's so, what it should be. That's correct. And you brought multiple examples in the book. So you spoke right now about Yom Kippur. And can you speak about maybe some of some other ones? You, you mentioned what one of my favorite ones was blessings that you spoke yeah, about. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. So I I don't I didn't talk about Yom Kippur in this book, but it's 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 for my next project. That that's really a powerful thing. But yes, daily blessings are very important. And the Mishnah tells us we should have a hundred blessings a day. And Harambam, fascinatingly, lists how you hit a hundred blessings a day. And a ble- it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's almost, um, how do you say, what word am I looking for? It's almost uh, 
shameful. We say Baruch Ata Adonai in the first person. Blessed are you, God. And the words mean something. The words are a link of intimacy between us and God. And yes, bold as it may sound, we utter those words and they ideally, as Harambam writes in his Mishneh Torah, ideally those words should induce in us, in us a sense of, wow, I'm just, in a moment, I'm just going to take a bite of this apple and my whole digestive system is a miracle in itself. How this apple that grew from a seed that we pulled from a tree is now going to fuel my body with energy. These are just magnificent ideas, eye-openers that the natural world provides us opportunity of inspiration, awe. How could that not lead to love of God? And so every opportunity you have to make a bracha, one should do it. And Harambam says, the bracha has to have kavana, intent. And you have to understand the words you're saying. Because the point of it is, like, like you said, to induce in me higher consciousness, my awareness of God. That's where I want to get, to that point of awareness. And so imagine if I'm living all day, if, I, if I've gone through those steps of pursuit of knowledge, correct knowledge, love and awe of God, contemplation, and then I come to these awareness moments and I can go through my entire day in, you know, in those moments of awareness experience, it's, it's mind-boggling and mind-blowing. And I'll just throw this out there for you and for your listeners you know, a big piece of the Moreha Nevuchim of the guide is accessing divine knowledge. It's not just the knowledge that we get from our books and from our studies, but learning how to access knowledge that comes from the outside. And that's where, when you, when, when, when you hit those moments of awareness, contemplation and awareness, and you get those flashes of insight, those are magnificent moments of of. of, of of, of awakening. You're going to be a psychologist and, 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 and hopefully you, you're, you'll, you'll, you'll experience that yourself in terms of the work you do with other people, the work you do in community, the work you do in helping others. Learn to access not just the knowledge of your books and of your experience, but learn to access the knowledge that comes from the divine. That's a fundamental principle in Judaism. Hashem communicates with the human being. There is so much, so much to go on, to go on this. This conversation can last uh, hours. Uh, of uh, course. But, but uh, for the sake of time, well, let's let's close it with one question, which is for for someone who is interested in jumping into this tradition, for the future mystic who wants to participate in the Andalusian tradition, mystical tradition. What's the next steps? What practical advice will you give them? Okay, I, I'm going to be frank. Okay, I'm going to be really frank, and, and I'm not trying to sell anything to anybody, truthfully. But um, I think there's a, a lot that could be gained if one is serious about this path from the book that I wrote, The Mysticism of Andalusia. That is the real truth. Um, I would say, uh, you know, take the Mishneh Torah of Harambam and study it uh, in the way Harambam intended us for it to study it. 
the first four chapters of the Mishneh Torah are Maaseh Bereshit and Maaseh Merkava, Kabbalistic texts, purely Kabbalistic texts. Now they're very hard. Most most people and most yeshivot just skip those first four chapters. But I, I think with some of the keys that you and I spoke about today, you can now access those chapters and understand and recognize, you know, when Harambam is trying to induce in us Maaseh Bereshit is being in awe and awareness of the created world. And Maaseh Merkava is being in awe of the world that is beyond the created world, the moment before the Big Bang. You know what I'm saying? If you look at that visual, uh, that, you know, there is what's in the created world and what's beyond the created world. And those are, you know, breaking into those induce profound, profound experiences. Um, and it's important to have a correct teacher. You can't, you can't navigate this yourself. Having a teacher who guides and um, who puts the right information at the right time in front of the student. Uh, and that, that's really important. When Harambam wrote the guide, uh, if you read the letter he wrote to his student, he says, the chapters will reach you wherever you may be. And he's not talking about geographic locations. When one reads and rereads the guide of the perplexed, Moran Evuchim, different parts resonate for you in different ways and at different times. That's why it's important to study it and reread it and, 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 and work it through uh, because it'll touch you in different ways at different times. I, I hope that answers your question. I know it, I, this is 40 years of my life. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's hard to put it into a little nutshell. Um, but, uh, you know, if, yeah, if we're coming to, if we're wrapping up, I do want to thank you for, for this opportunity. Uh, Ohad, no, uh, thank I, I, you hope so I, much. Help, I hope, I hope it was clear what, 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 what uh, I was trying to say. For sure. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Rabbi, where can people find you and where can people get the book? Okay. So I welcome emails from people. It's my full name, yaminlevy at gmail.com. And I try to respond um, as uh, quickly as possible. It all depends on urgency. It depends on my time. Um, the book is on Amazon. And... Um, uh, it's easily accessible. Uh, many libraries have ordered it, are ordering it. And if you, if your library doesn't have it and you don't want to purchase it, ask your library to order it and they'll get it. Um, and uh, yeah, that, you know, that, that, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm in Great Neck. Anybody's around, call. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening and take care. Thank you.